Welcome to the Association of Insurance Compliance Professionals podcast. AICP serves the insurance compliance community by promoting relationships, exchanging information, and providing learning opportunities within a dynamic regulatory environment. You're listening to High Waters. Join our host, Katie Gurnett, as she sits down with Paul Wong, the Acting Associate Administrator for the Federal Insurance and Mitigation Administration, and Brock Long, the former administrator of the Federal Emergency Management Agency and Hagerty Consulting's executive chairman to discuss the role of NFIP and FEMA in flood insurance, mitigation, and financial resiliency. What is the NFIP and FEMA doing to help people when that 100-year flood strikes? What does the future hold for the program, the agency, and for each of you? And now, here's your host, Katie Gurnett. So hi, everyone. My name's Katie Gurnett. I'm here with... Paul and Brock, and they are going to join us to talk about FEMA and the National Flood Insurance Program. And just to educate our students a little bit, would one of you like to tell me in very brief terms, what is flood insurance? Yeah, hi, I'm Paul Wong, and I'm happy to jump in. Thanks for having us today. It's great to see our old administrator, Brock, and it's been a while. Uh, He looks great for those I know you're audioing, but you can picture Brock. He still looks young and, and energetic, and we miss him at the agency. But flood insurance is really something that many people don't know that FEMA underwrites in this country. So in 1968, there was a storm called Betsy that came up the Florida coast, and it did a lot of damage. And at the time, there was no flood insurance coverage in the private insurance markets. And the reason is, in insurance You want a very spread out risk. You don't want a concentrated risk. And flooding happens to be very concentrated risk. Additionally, if you actually want to sell insurance in the private markets, you have to know where the risk is. In our country in 1968, there was no flood identification. Where is the flood risk in our country? So there was no flood maps. And there were no standards for building codes. So you don't want to cover apparel that doesn't really have a lot of mitigation, a lot of risk reduction. And there weren't floodplain management standards or building codes for flooding for most of the country. So in 1968, you know, a group of folks got in a room and, and they thought about designing a program to cover flood in this country, to share the risk and ensure that people could recover quicker and more faster from the devastation of the floodwaters. So the National Flood Insurance Program was founded in 68. It was actually established under HUD, the Housing Urban Development Agency, and it then later moved to FEMA, where it's now at home. And what FEMA does with the flood insurance program is actually do all the flood maps in the country. So we've identified flood risk in the country for over 22,500 communities. To participate and get flood insurance availability for your community, you have to adopt floodplain management ordinances. So flood codes and ordinances are now adopted by those 22,000 plus communities across the nation. And as a result, we make flood insurance available to them. And as a condition of having a federally backed loan, if you live in a high-risk flood area identified by these flood maps, you're actually required to buy flood insurance. But as a result, more people are covered with flood insurance in this country than before the program was established. The private sector is starting to establish a flood market, and we encourage that. We want to see more people covered by flood insurance. But that's a little bit of the basics on flood insurance. Thanks, Paul. So it's extra on top of your homeowner's insurance. It's not part of homeowners, correct? Right. Often people think their homeowner's insurance will cover the peril of flood. And how we identify flood very simply is 
floodwaters coming into your home. So if you have like a leaky refrigerator and it floods your home, that's actually covered under homeowner's insurance or your sump pump is busted and water comes into your basement, that's covered under homeowner's insurance. But floodwaters come into your home, it's the simplest way to understand it, then that peril is not covered by standard homeowner's insurance and you have to buy that additional coverage. We partner with over 50 large companies that sell insurance in this country. Many of those you've heard jingles on TV for. So call your agent if you want to get flood insurance, and almost all of them will work with us to ensure that if you want flood insurance, we make it available to you. That's a great explanation. So how does FEMA oversee all this? Brock, it sounds like the flood maps are one thing, but is there other stuff that has to, the interaction between FEMA and NFIP? So the NFIP program is, is very interesting. First of all, it's a needed program, right? But as a former FEMA administrator, and, and first of all, I'm going to say this before we even get started. Paul Huang is a rock star inside FEMA. Bottom line is, is that, you know, many times Paul and his staff are forced to run a program that has to run at a different standard than a normal insurance agency, private insurance agency, which I think is unfair. The NFIP is incredibly important because the private sector wouldn't pick up flood insurance for the longest time after Betsy in 68, and the government had to provide the solution. But as we continue to evolve and the private sector picks up a little bit more of the footprint, I think that's a good thing. The problem that FEMA faces is that historically, and Paul, please correct me if I'm wrong, the, the program has had a hard time staying financially solvent. And so what you're seeing is big floods will bankrupt the program because FEMA is not allowed to necessarily charge an actuarial rate historically. And an actuarial rate would be you pay an insurance premium based on the real risk that you face in your community. And what happens is, is, is if the risk increases, then the premium increases, and Congress doesn't like that for their constituents. So the problem FEMA faces, and I can say this, Paul can't say it, is that they're held to a double standard. The agency's held to a double standard. Congress wants FEMA to run a financially solvent insurance program, but then they want to turn around and make concessions for their constituents when it comes to affordability and rates not increasing. So you can't have it both ways. And what happens is, is when you have major floods like Hurricane Harvey, which I saw in 2017, one flood can deplete the bank account of the NFIP program. And then FEMA's got to go back and ask Congress for more funding within the NFIP program, which I got to do three times during my tenure in two years. You're absolutely right, Brock. I mean, we are, as a program, actually $20 billion in debt to the U.S. Treasury. But are we running a bad program? No, that is actually by design. Yeah. Because if we were a private sector insurance company, we would collect enough premium to make sure that we have enough to cover our losses and catastrophic losses. And we'd ensure that we would build to a certain planning factor in terms of our finances. But we do have constraints through statute that limit our ability to charge those full risk rates. Recently, though, we've actually started modernizing a rating system and, and delivered something called Risk Rating 2.0, which is a great step towards getting us to more fiscal soundness. More has to be done on that. And we are working with the Hill to, to propose what a sound financial framework might look like for the National Flood Insurance Program. But I think, too, you know, Katie, for your listeners, Insurance is the first line of defense, not FEMA individual assistance. So when a disaster strikes and it's declared by the President of the United States, there's essentially two types of assistance that go out. There's public assistance, which is designed to fix the broken infrastructure. 
And then there's individual assistance, which is designed to kickstart your recovery, you the citizen, right? The problem is when disasters are their worst is when you have a high concentration or high population that's been impacted that's uninsured or underinsured. And so, you know, one of the problems that FEMA has faced through the NFIP is when they change their maps and show increased risk. And then Congress gets upset, you know, state leaders, local officials get upset because FEMA's new map capability shows that the risk is greater than we once thought. And now there's more people inside the flood zone. And you'd be amazed that people will actually argue against the expansion of a map or the improved maps that come out because more people are shown to be exposed. And it requires people to consider flood insurance or to obtain flood insurance. And people don't like that because you're you know, you're getting into their checkbooks. And and we all understand that. But the bottom line is, is that if you go through a flood or a wildfire, or you pull back on just your general homeowner's insurance, you will not recover from that disaster financially. You know, those who are properly insured recover exponentially quicker than those who are uninsured or underinsured. And there's plenty of statistics to support that, particularly if you look at Hurricane Harvey again. And When Harvey hit in 2017, a huge portion of the homes that were impacted flooded and were uninsured, you know, and and so those homeowners then have to pay off their old mortgage, but then enter into a low interest SBA loan to rebuild or buy a new home. And then you're stuck with two mortgages, not just one after the fact. But those that had the insurance in place was great. And here's the thing. Any homeowner, regardless if you're shown inside a flood map or not, should consider flood insurance. Any house can flood. And I think, Paul, you know, that's one of the myths from a communication standpoint that the country's got to overcome. Just because you're shown inside a flood map or outside that flood map doesn't mean that you don't need flood insurance. I think that any house can flood and, you know, for example, the newly built environment. We've built more homes in the last two years during the COVID pandemic than ever before to the minimum standard of every state, but yet we talk about community resilience. It drives me crazy. You know, we built more homes to the minimum standards, and that built environment contributes to increasing the flood issues in many cases if it's not done correctly. And watershed becomes a problem. Concrete doesn't absorb water very well. And so in, in many cases, the maps can't keep up with the expansion of the built environment. And next thing you know, you know, a community doesn't maintain their storm drainage ditches. There's, you know, there's deferred maintenance on the sewer systems, whatever it may be, and your house floods, but yet you're shown outside of the flood zone. So in my opinion, the first line of defense to being ready for disasters is being properly insured in the future. You're absolutely right. Where it rains, it can flood. And we actually pay about a quarter of our losses outside of that high-risk special flood hazard area. And to Brock's point about Harvey, when he was administrator during Harvard, he asked me to be the deputy in the National Response Center. And one of my first questions is, how many people have flood insurance here? And it turned out that those that got flooded, eight out of 10 did not have flood insurance. So to his point, using SBA as an option, that's another loan. And people think that the government is going to come in and help them. And we do our best through individual assistance, but it's temporary assistance. It's temporary housing. It's temporary repairs. It's getting a generator in to to dry out your home, but it's not permanent. So our average IA individual assistance during Harvey was about $7,000 per household. And that's actually pretty generous compared to our our normal averages. 
but those that had flight insurance policies were getting $115,000 on average. So I always ask myself, like, which home owner would I want to be? The one that was reliant on individual assistance and SBA or the one that had flood insurance. So we do need more people covered. I do think one of the reasons that people don't buy flood insurance unless it's required is the cost, though. So I think it's hard to justify that extra cost on your house payment when you have to pay. I don't even know what the average cost on flood insurance is anymore. I know that when I used to work in that industry that it was pretty high. It was pretty substantial. So... Is that something that would bring down the cost if we got more people who weren't in flood zones to to buy the insurance? And I mean, generally, that's what you think of that it would, because the more people you have, the more you spread out the risk. One of the things I like to highlight is, Brock, we'll play a little quiz here. What is the percentage of households in America that have played the lottery this past year? Oh, man, I don't know. (laughs) Probably 70%. (laughs) It is over 50%. So how many households in this country, percentage-wise, have flood insurance as residential households? Oh, gosh. I don't know. Less than 10, 15%. I don't know. It's four. Oh, my gosh. Four percent. Yeah. I mean, I knew it was low, but... So then the final question is, what is the most frequent and costly disaster type in the U.S.? Yeah, flood. And deadlies. So we're talking about your most expensive, and also where your assets are most, your home, right? But let's, let's address this. So look, I believe in climate change. I believe the climate's changing. We've got to do more, right? But you know, the other reason disasters are getting worse, and this is something that I've been really convicted about, Paul. I mean, what's the other, what is the other main reason why, like, I started asking this question of why are we entering so many people into individual assistance in 2017? And in 2017, when Harvey, Irma, and Maria hit, right, and the California wildfires hit, we registered more people in the individual assistance in Florida in 2017 than any other state in many disasters combined. But yet Florida is supposed to be one of the most prepared states from a citizen standpoint. And what was interesting to me was, is that, you know, if you look at why people are entered into individual assistance, it's because they lack insurance. They don't have it. And so the numbers are off the charts. Well, if that's the case, we need to start breaking this down. And why are people uninsured? One of the biggest problems for the young listeners on this is understand financial resiliency. You know, we have a huge problem in this country of asset poverty, not not income poverty of I don't make enough money to make ends meet. You know, I make less than $30,000 a year. I can't survive. That's income poverty. I'm not trying to solve that problem. The asset poverty piece means I make six figures. I make a great living, but I spend everything that I have. I'm in debt up to my eyeballs. I am highly leveraged because I drive the right car. I live in the right house. And guess what? To make ends meet, you know where I save money? I pull back on insurance. Sure, because they're playing the odds. And it's a huge problem that nobody wants to talk about. Right. It's a gamble. It's a gamble. Don't you think some of this plays into where we're building, though, too? Because I think because people want to live in areas that are more pleasing aesthetically, they like to build along riverbanks. They like to build along coastal lines. They like to build places that are more prone to floods. And then that becomes an issue because now you have more bodies there. Well, okay. on that note, yeah, 
why can you graduate high school and still not have a financial resiliency background? Why can you graduate Ivy League schools and still not know how to save and invest a dollar, right? Why are you not taught the concepts of insurance before you can even graduate sure. college, right? So there's a financial resiliency piece where I think for community preparedness going forward in the future, we've got to teach financial resilience. I, I totally agree. Brock will be super pleased. My son, guess what summer school class he's taking? Finance and basic economics. There you go. Power compound interest. So it's about savings and investing and and those type of things. And that's really important. So we do need to increase that education level. I do want to go back. There is still a pocket of affordability that we need to address. Sure. We did an affordability study in the National Flight Insurance Program a couple of years ago. And what it highlighted was of our policyholders in the high-risk flood areas, about a quarter of them actually would qualify as low income for a HUD program. About half of our non-policyholders, people that can't actually afford a policy, or don't have a policy, about half of them in the special flood hazard area actually would qualify as low income. So I agree, there is a pocket that we need to make sure that there's an education on, on personal finance and asset poverty, and we need to address that issue. And then there's a pocket that they're truly we can make flood insurance available, but they will have trouble affording it. Sure. And we've actually worked with the Hill to propose a means-based test in which we would help those uh, individuals and homeowners make sure that they can afford flood insurance. So, Paul, along those lines, one of the things that I think FEMA's got to do better as an industry is when you mention the term mitigation, you know, the definition of mitigation is any action to prevent loss of life and damage to property. The aspect of that definition that is left out the most is that a lot of that focus is on protecting property and infrastructure, grant dollars to protect infrastructure. For the equity piece, I think more mitigation dollars, particularly you know the post-disaster dollars, have got to be easily and more readily available to depressed communities that meet a certain aspect to increase levels of insurance through parametric insurance concepts. Why can a depressed community not apply to FEMA for a mitigation grant to offset the cost, not indefinitely, but on a graduating scale coupled with financial resiliency education and other economic grants to bring jobs to the area, right? I mean, the mission is far greater than just FEMA. But I think that the mitigation funding needs to start looking at offsetting insurance costs not just brick and mortar infrastructure. I think that we've got a lot to do there. And, and I know that there's been some talk and some programs to do that. But going back to, you know, on top of that, Congress gets so frustrated with, uh, there was a contentious, you know, hearing the other day uh, about the NFIP. And here again, Congress wants the program to work, but they also want to make these concessions. And I've often joked that if you continue to allow people to build in areas they shouldn't be building, building to substandards, standards that we know are not going to hold up to the future of climate change, then get ready to reap the benefits of that. And, you know, we've got to increase, in addition to making, you know, the NFIP financially solvent, you've got to be able to increase residential and building codes. You've got to increase the land use planning. And if Congress gets upset about the way FEMA's trying to, you know, run the NFIP, then do away with the program and let Mother Nature work it out. You know, because Mother Nature is going to tell you where we should live and where we shouldn't. And 
you know, and that's harsh. And so people want their cake and want to eat it too. And, you know, Paul can't say the things that I can say now, <laughs> you know, but, but the bottom line is, is that the program can only do so much if Congress is always going to put these little nuances in the program to protect their constituents every once in a while. You know, at some point, we have to start asking those questions of where we live. Is it smart? Or are we building to the next standard? The other thing, too, is I don't believe that government solutions, bigger, better government solutions is the answer to our problems. And in this area, one of the things that I've started to look at differently is different data sets and the way that different private industry works in our community. Why does the appraisal industry not evaluate mitigated homes that are built properly and in the right areas? higher than the ones that aren't. We value beach homes higher than homes that are built safe and outside of storm surge and flood areas. <laughs> so there you go. Uh, until that problem is corrected, good luck trying to run the NFIP program. I agree. I do feel like with climate change and the dialogue around climate change and the more frequent risks and, and losses we've seen over the last couple of years, that is starting to happen, which is exciting, Brock. I mean, I know in pockets of Florida, they're starting to, to give more home value to those more mitigated structures. We do have to bring a balance in terms of equity, though, so that those that are disadvantaged or, or socially vulnerable have the opportunity to build higher as well to see that value increase. What you don't want to see as a fracture of those that can afford mitigation and do better also continue to do better and those that can't continue to fall behind, right? But you're, you're absolutely right in terms of creative mitigation. And we have the fortune of the new BRIC program, which is the Building Resilient Infrastructure Communities Program, and also our flood mitigation assistance grants that have really just, you know, almost quadrupled in the last couple of years in terms of funding amounts to help combat climate and to help infrastructure primarily in residential properties be safer. But it's not enough. So to your point, Brock, we have to be innovative. And perhaps that is uh, looking at other insurance types and leverage of those. And we've got to stop some of the stuff that goes on in our communities. How many times have real estate, you know, realtors basically said that, you know, advertised a home that this home doesn't require FEMA flood insurance, like it's a great thing. Right. The other problem too, and, and I've had personal experience in this, is that part of the issues on the, uh, the private insurance side. I recently acquired a property and uh, I'm shown outside of a floodplain. And when I talk to a private insurance provider, I'm arguing with them about the definition of flood, you know, and the differences between water coming in from the outside is a mudslide covered under flood. Is it not broken windows, wind driven rain, you know, these types of things. And quite honestly, what, we, what you'll find and, and the earthquake insurance is the same. You know, earthquake insurance is a separate program too, right? You'll be talked out of it because you don't need it because you're not specifically in that map. And so in some cases, people are talked out of being properly insured by the insurance industry itself right? when it should be advocated. And then two down the road as a homeowner, why can I not buy one all hazard policy? Yeah. You're right. There is a discouragement. When I took this role, Brock, I decided I probably should buy a flood insurance policy. And I called my agent. And, and the first thing they said was, why would you want to do that? Yeah. The good news is I'm an optimist. And I think things are starting to change. We have modernized the program. 
So when Broth joined us at FEMA, we actually were on an old mainframe system. We're now in a cloud-based data-driven environment where I could push a button today and tell you how many claims and policies we've sold. As a result, we've actually modernized our rating engine and we've centralized it in a way that instead of asking 30 questions to get a quote, we just asked six or seven. And by simplifying that process, it's making our agents want to sell this more. It's making it easier and less burdensome to the customer to say, okay, I'd like a flood quote then. We ask a couple questions and they get a quote. It's very different than when I first bought a policy seven years ago. So I think we're evolving and being more customer centric. As a result, I think agents are embracing it more. We've fixed the claims process. So post-disaster, we see usually an uptick in, in, in sales. And, and part of that is their neighbors are saying, thank goodness I had this. And they did a good job adjusting my claim and it was quick and effective. I think we're starting to move in that direction. So one of the things you talked about is trying to move into the future. So I know flood insurance, since it's government and the government moves really slow, has, has there been changes like to try to align homeowners more with the flood insurance policy form so that they're easier to use and people understand them better or, or maybe even sell it differently? Say be a, a lot of people do their stuff direct response now on the web or on an app on their phone. Is there anything in that area that's going on? Yeah, there, there are three things I'd like to highlight. One is uh, Fannie Mae just did a, a study, and we're working with them closely, about those that uh, foreclose post-disaster without flood insurance. And I think the rate, and we'll have to check the number, but I think it's, it's almost 50% greater if you do not have flood cover. So to Brock's point, as the larger community, private community, and lenders like Fannie and others start looking at the impacts of climate change, I think a signal to homeowners, to renters, businesses is going to start happening. So I think that's really exciting to push us in that world where it becomes more of a social norm to have flood insurance. It's not something you fight, it's something you embrace. The second is we realize, you know, we got to keep innovating. We got to meet the customer where they are. And you saw that like with the technology we've invested in during COVID, we did remote claims adjusting for the first time. And that wasn't my plan, but it was five years down the road. But COVID forced us to say, let's do that differently. Let's allow someone to do their own claim from their own home using their phone. So from a sales perspective, we've also decided that we're going to start, and it's been early in the process, of looking to develop a direct-to-customer mobile app in which if you wanted to buy a policy, you click a couple buttons on your phone and you can do so. So we're starting down that line. The third thing is we're working to modernize our products. We are offering a product that is old and clunky. It's hard for agents to learn. It's different than what a homeowner's insurance policy form looks like. So someone that is in, in the insurance business trying to sell homeowners, auto, and life, and flood, flood looks like completely different. And we've modernized those products. It's going through the rulemaking process now to make sure that it looks like homeowners policies. And ultimately the goal is people start saying, hey, this is close enough, we can just attach the two, right? And we can, we can make maybe a single policy. And that's the movement we're going down. Yeah, you know, the, the, the insurance industry doesn't make it easy to understand. There are so many nuances. You know, if there's modernization, there needs to be, a, you know, language simplicity that Congress has got to start pushing down. It, it's crazy. I mean, you know, we, we will teach kids in high school 
complicated calculus and formulas and different things, but nobody educates anybody on how the home mortgage works or insurance and the nuances behind how life works. And that's part of the problem, right? And there, there are people that will say, ah, you don't need flood insurance. Why would you do that? Those types of things. And people aren't educated enough to make the, the right decision to protect their family. But the biggest thing you got to walk away with from this podcast is understand how to be financially resilient and be properly insured. And those two things right there are going to help you face the next disaster that you face. And it's not a question of if it happens, it's a question of when. The other thing, too, is, is that, you know, when we look at disaster vulnerabilities in the future, Paul, something that I've really been tapping into. And again, I'm, I don't want to come across as hitting you in the mouth about financial resiliency and the lack of insurance. But I do think the industry needs to pay attention to the average credit scores of communities across the country, right? So think about this. If you could overlay the swath of a flood or a hurricane or a tornado, I've often wondered if a community's average credit score of its citizens will dictate how hard the recovery will be or the insurance levels that will be in force and in play there. And if you've got communities that are experiencing a declining credit, average credit score amongst their citizens, then that means there's more demand, likely means that there's more demand for government services with less tax income means. It also probably means that Homeland Security issues could be going up. It could mean uh, less insurance in force. And if we notice these trends, then how does FEMA work with, I don't know, the Department of Commerce and Labor and all these other agencies to say, hey, we've got a disturbing trend. It's not just sea level rise, but look at these financial numbers. They're declining in this community, which means we're going to have a bigger vulnerability to the next disaster. How do we get that going in the opposite direction? You know, I often wonder if we're if we're truly, when it comes to disaster resilience, missing some of the key data sets to help us make informed decisions in the future. Yeah. The exciting part is we're starting to get better data. FEMA just recently launched what we call the National Risk Index. Just go to FEMA's website and just search for National Risk Index. And that actually has a rating of multiple hazards uh, by community. And you can overlay a social vulnerability layer to kind of see where our communities are more socially vulnerable. We're using those type of tools and data to inform where we invest in mitigation and where we invest in mapping. And I think that's an exciting first step to start saying, if we have a competitive grant process, let's make sure we're giving additional points to those areas that Brock's talking about. And then beyond that, I think his points of getting creative and working interagency to think about getting ahead of those risks on the financial side is very important. I do. I do have a wonder, though, with, as you brought up a couple of times, global warming. I know that I'm here in Nebraska, which got hit pretty hard by major flood a couple of years ago. Uh, we're still seeing damage that, I mean, the river changed course the whole bit. It's kind of crazy. But then you see the floods that have been happening in Yellowstone. And I think those hit people pretty hard. I mean, the pictures on the news are houses falling into the into the river. And they keep saying these are 100-year floods, but they're happening a lot more often, it seems like. And, and I'm wondering how we educate people more so that it's not that 100-year flood. It's it's like you said, these can happen anywhere. I mean, we talk a lot about hurricanes on the coast, but really the inside of the country, the inner part of the country, the heartland gets hit really hard with these floods because of that situation also. And I, I don't know if they're more insured or less insured in this part of the country. 
I, it's definitely less. You see these terrible pictures in Yellowstone and the Nebraska flooding the previous year, and our policy counts are so low. But to speak to your audience about this, I think they really have a role as future insurers and, and leaders in their communities. Sunny day flooding is happening in lots of places. I was down in, in the Norfolk, Virginia Beach area recently, and I met an a insurer, and then I met a realtor, and they had partnered. And the realtor was not afraid to talk about flood risk, right? And it was really eye-opening because most realtors, you know, there's a little bit of hesitancy. I don't want to deter someone from this property. But this realtor said, I live in this community and my reputation is in this community. So if I saw a property and it floods, they're going to look at me and say, why didn't you warn me? Why didn't you tell me about flood insurance? Why didn't you encourage me to do that? And I love that message. And I hope your listeners carry that message, which is they're part of a community. And I think it's a, it's a great responsibility to say, hey, let me make you aware this is important, right? And I think that's a, a great thing that that realtor and that insurer had partnered up and they were not afraid to talk about it. And I think that was healthy. Plus, you guys don't like getting all the complaints after a flood happens. And FEMA's like, you're not covered. So NFIP's like, I can't do anything. FEMA's like, I don't have any more money. So it'd be nice if people would <laughs> do what we need them to do, correct? What other big things are going on that we want to make sure we touch bases on that you guys want to make sure you get to talk about a little bit with our students? Hey, Paul, you know what I think is important too is, you know, the country's in a transition when it comes to housing, period. Less and less home ownership, more and more rentership you know, how do renters <laughs> be properly insured going forward too might be something because you've got big industry buying up homes all over the place, thousands of homes at the time, you know, private equity firms and different things, buying up housing, first time homes, and people are not able or in a position to buy a home, but they are going to be renting. So what should they know about renters insurance in the flood insurance program? No, thanks for bringing that up, Brock. I know uh, during your time as administrator, we had to deal with Maria. And that hit Puerto Rico really hard. And we, of course, started using some behavioral sciences to say, hey, after a storm, we can use some geospatial technologies to put out marketing in areas that were nearly missed. And people go, Phew. thank goodness I was missed, but I need to cover myself for the next one. And that was actually very successful. So we started doing that in Puerto Rico. And we realized that, one, language was a barrier. And then two, most of the customers there were renters, right? Uh, so we had a large renter population. So we tailored our advertising and our marketing to target contents-only policies because we don't have many in, in the country in the National Flood Insurance Program, just contents-only, which is a renter's policy. But they're affordable and they're meaningful. And when we think about equity, we should push more of those lower-cost products. And importantly for renters, you know, their shoes, the sofa that they bought, the new TV, all that stuff is contents coverage. And they can get a good amount of contents coverage through the National Flood Insurance Program for a pretty affordable price. And we don't talk often enough about it because similarly, a renter's policy doesn't cover the peril flood in most cases. So that's a great point, Brock, and something that we should encourage more. You don't have to just own a home. It's just renting, because I think that is one of the big holes in insurance in general is the renter's insurance situation. We're just about out of time, but I want to make sure before we go that if you have some words of wisdom you'd like to share with some of our students, like maybe they would like to think about 
going to work for the NFIP or FEMA. I mean, they're, they're totally different, but uh, is there anything you want to share with students, even about insurance in general as, as a field to look at? I mean, I'll go. I, you know, I, I've spent my entire career, I'm rare, I've been in emergency management my entire career uh, since 1999. What an amazing adventure I've been on. I have met amazing people, seen terrible things in, in communities, but what a growing industry and, and rightfully so. And there's, it's not just a, you know, look at government jobs. There's a whole private sector that supports the emergency management and disaster space. I think that our environment and our profession is ripe for new ideas and people willing to put their politics aside and do what's right to save lives and help communities protect themselves in the future. You know, that's that's what's needed in this industry is young, eager, and experienced Americans that want to make a difference, save lives. Yeah. And, you know, we have a mission statement that says we're here at FEMA to help people before, during, and after disasters. And I never actually, until I got into the National Flight Insurance Program, thought insurance was a part of that. And then now that I've worked in it, I deeply believe in that. So my advice to, we work with a lot of private insurance agents and, and uh, insurance companies. And every time I meet with them, the good ones stand out. And the good ones stand out because they care about their communities. In my mind, they're emergency managers. They're in it, not just for the profit motive. I mean, that's a nice thing. But they're really in it because they believe that something bad is going to happen and this person is going to be thankful that they had protection for their family, right? And as I've gotten into the National Flight Insurance Program, I believe it. And I see it every time we travel out to the field after a disaster, the families hugging and thanking us for making sure that their homes are protected by flood insurance and that we're going to help them back on their feet. And also hugging and crying with those that don't have it and are worried about what's next. So if you carry that passion, you're going to do really well as an insurance agent in this business. Yep, absolutely. Well, thank you, gentlemen. I really appreciate it. I learned a lot too. Like I said, I haven't been in the flood area for quite a while, so I appreciate you uh, educating us. And thank you for your time today. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thanks, Katie. Thank you.